Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks this morning for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that in Christ we have hope. In Christ we have peace. In Christ we can truly rejoice regardless of the circumstances. Lord, we pray that as your word is proclaimed this morning, that the name of Jesus would be exalted, that our hearts would be lifted up to you, that our affections would be set on you, that by the power of your spirit, you would work in our midst, that we would place complete confidence and trust in Jesus this morning. And as always, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God, and that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One, one of the most important things for a Christian to understand is the difference between indicative statements and imperative statements. Indicative statements and imperative statements. Indicative statements are statements that say what is or what has happened. Imperatives are statements of command. So for example, I could say, this water is cold. That would be an indicative statement. It's saying what is. If I were to say, give me a bottle of water, that would be imperative, an imperative statement. Now this is important because the Bible is filled with both kinds of statements. And the pattern in scripture is for the indicative statements or rather the imperative statements to always be grounded in the indicative statements. So the commands are always grounded in what has already happened. So even going all the way back to the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments, we get ten clear imperatives, right? Well, even there, before we get to the Ten Commandments, early in the chapter, in chapter 20 of Exodus, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
So even the Ten Commandments, those imperatives are grounded in the indicative of who God is and what God has done, and that is the case throughout Scripture. And so what we as Christians are commanded to do always springs from either what God has done or what God promises to do. And so in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is nearing the conclusion of the letter, and we're in a section of the letter that is loaded with imperatives or commands. And so in chapter 4, if you look up at verse 1, you see the word therefore, which is connecting everything that comes afterwards with what came before. And so last week, we looked at what came before, specifically in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And what we saw was the glorious reality that Christians are citizens of heaven. Christians are citizens of heaven. Our heavenly citizenship was purchased by the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is called Savior because that's exactly who he is. His work was a saving work. He died on the cross to save his people from their sins. And he rose from the grave on the third day so that all who turn from their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus have this promise communicated in chapter 3, verse 21, that for the Christian, our lives do not end here. But there is an after. The time is going to come when Jesus himself will raise believers from the grave. He'll transform us. That's the indicative. That is what God has done. He saved us from our sins, and then he's promised to raise us from the grave. That is what is the case. And now, in light of that, therefore, we see imperatives. We looked at a few of them last week. We saw the call in chapter 4 to stand firm in verse 1. We saw the call for unity amongst believers in verses 2 and 3. And now, in our text today, we'll be looking at a few more of these commands. And so the first thing that I want us to observe is actually three things. I'll just, I'll just lay them out. First is pondering properly. Pondering properly. Second is the power of prayer. The power of prayer. And then finally, the promise of peace. The promise of peace. So you got that, Gary. I know. <laughs> the promise of peace. So pondering properly, the power of prayer, and the promise of peace. First, pondering properly. To ponder is to think carefully about something. One of the things that strikes you about these verses is how much weight is given to the life of the mind for the Christian. So God is not only concerned about what we do, but he's also concerned about how we think. He's concerned about what is going on internally, our inner lives, as it were. And so in verse 4, 
we see the command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Here the Apostle Paul is repeating what he said in chapter 3, verse 1. So up in 3, 1, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now we know that when he says to rejoice, it's not a feeling merely. It includes feeling, but it's not a feeling only because of texts like 2 Corinthians chapter 6.10, where the Apostle Paul speaks of being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so it's possible to do what's commanded in this verse, even in the midst of sorrow. And remember the context. The Apostle Paul is suffering in a prison. The church at Philippi is suffering under various forms of persecution from the surrounding culture and from false teachers. The Apostle Paul has already told them in chapter 1, verse 29, that it has been granted to them to suffer. And yet, to a suffering church, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And not only that, he adds the word always. That word always in the original is an interesting word that means always. It means always, at all times, ever, regardless of the circumstances or the situation, the command still stands. And this is not about our natural disposition either or personality. Some people are more naturally bubbly and others are more naturally melancholy. But this command is for all Christians, regardless of your temperament. And this is a stunning command. Consider how all-encompassing this command is. That may be why he repeats it. Again, I say rejoice. You get the sense that the church is like, wait, always? Apostle Paul? Again, I say rejoice. You did not mishear me when I said that. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, how is it possible to do this at all times? Well, as we saw when we looked at it a couple months ago, when he says rejoice in the Lord, that root word for rejoice here is related to the same word that we get grace from. And so it's connected to God's salvation. So, so when he says rejoice in the Lord, he's saying consider and delight in God's saving grace. To, to ponder, to, to think carefully about God's grace to you in such a way that it would produce joy in you. It means to consider where you were if you're a Christian, where you were before you came to Christ, that you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. It means to consider that before Jesus, you were without hope and without God in the world. To consider that before Jesus, you were like a sheep that had gone astray and turned to your own way. It means to consider that God has done the unthinkable in sending his son Jesus to die for you. 
It means to consider that Jesus bore your sins in his body on the tree, that he rose from the grave and now intercedes for you at the Father's right hand. It means to consider that through faith in Christ, in God's eyes, you are blameless right now before him. To consider that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus and that there is nothing that will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord, to consider and delight in the saving grace of God. And the reason why we can do that always by the grace of God, is because none of those things ever change. For the Christian, all of those truths are the same always. No matter where we are, no matter what the circumstances are in our lives, the truth of salvation always stands. It it stands now and it will stand into eternity. And that's why we can rejoice always. And so the fruit of pondering properly in this way is we see it in verse 5 he says let your reasonableness be known to everyone other translations say gentleness that word there is the same word that's actually used in the qualifications for an elder in first timothy 3 verse 3 when it says not violent but gentle that's our word it's, it's the, op- the opposite of argumentative. And so in the same way that the believer is to rejoice at all times, that spirit of gentleness is to be seen by everyone. Again, it's comprehensive. And again, this is not about personality type, right? So the Christians who naturally have outgoing, vibrant, lively personalities, And they're called to exhibit this grace just as people who are naturally quiet or reserved. And so, and it also, it says it should be obvious to everyone. It should be known to everyone. So it's something that's not hidden in a corner somewhere, but it's something that is out in the open. And I think this goes all the way back to chapter 2, verse 3, when He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then again, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So our gentleness or our reasonableness will be evident to all if we're walking in humility if we're counting others as better or more significant than ourselves. It will be a natural outworking of this. We see another aspect of pondering properly in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. This echoes the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 6, 25, when the Lord Jesus said, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And the Lord Jesus was speaking specifically about our daily needs, our physical needs. But the Apostle Paul, he, he broadens it to include all areas of life. Do not be anxious about anything. It literally covers every single imaginable possibility in life. Do not be anxious about your finances. Do not be anxious about your job. Do not be anxious about your living situation. Do not be anxious about your health. Do not be anxious about your children's health. Do not be anxious about your parents. Do not be anxious about your house. Do not be anxious about your car. Do not be anxious about your marriage. Do not be anxious about the desire for a relationship. Do not be anxious about your reputation. Do not be anxious about your future. And do not be anxious about anything. Why is that? Why does he tell us to not be anxious about anything? I can think of at least four reasons. Four reasons why anxiety is pointless. Reason number one, it doesn't change anything. <laughs> to, to be anxious does not change anything. This is the Lord Jesus logic in Matthew six twenty seven when he says, and which, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Right? Rhetorical question. None of you. You can't. It doesn't change anything. Not only that, it actually has, anxiety has negative effects on the one who has the anxiety. So Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down actually has negative effects on the one who is carrying the anxiety. Third, and perhaps most important, is that anxiety actually lies about God. Anxiety lies about God. It lies about the goodness of God. It lies about the faithfulness of God. It lies about the love of God. And it lies about the provision of God. What anxiety says, and, and, and most of us would never say it out loud, but, but the language of anxiety is, Lord, I, I know your word says you're good, but I'm, I'm just really, really worried about how my finances are going to be taken care of because I actually don't think that you're going to provide like you said you're going to provide. That, that, that's, that's anxiety talking. Anxiety says, Lord, I know that your word says that you love me, and I know your word says there's no condemnation for me if I'm in Christ Jesus, but I'm, I'm just so concerned about my own salvation, and if I actually really belong to you, that I'm just going to disregard what you say about your promises of your love towards me. That's what anxiety as it relates to assurance of salvation, would say. 
It lies about God. Lord, I know you said that you would meet all of my needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I know it says that in your word, but, 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 but Lord, right? It's anxiety talking. And here's the thing. The fourth thing about anxiety is that it's never satisfied. Anxiety is never satisfied. If it's not actually dealt with, what it does is it just transfers from one object to another object. So it works kind of like this. You're anxious about getting a job. You've prayed for it. The bills are coming in. You need it. And so you're anxious about it. By the grace of God, he provides it. And you would think that once you got the job, that the anxiety would then be gone. But no, the anxiety rears its ugly head because now you're anxious about getting a promotion. Oh, man, I'm praying for it. Gotta, gotta get it. Am I going to get it? Is it going to happen? And then what do you know? By the grace of God, you get the promotion. But is the anxiety gone? No. Now I have all these people under me. What am I going to do? How am I going to be a good supervisor? Right? You're anxious because there's a person that you're interested in. And you're anxious because is the person actually going to be interested in me? Will the feelings be mutual? And then you find out that it's mutual, and does, does that make the anxiety go away? No. It's, oh, no. It's mutual. What do we do now? Now you're anxious about if the relationship will actually work. And the relationship is going great by the grace of God. But now you're anxious about, well, will we get married? Right? It just transfers. And then, hallelujah, you get married. Now you're anxious about, what do you say? You say everything? Everything. Hmm. I was going to say anxious about having kids. And then let's say by the grace of God you have the kids. Now, will the kids be healthy? And then as the kids get older, you're anxious about their safety, anxious about their education. Years later, they become adults. Now you're anxious about their job, their promotion, their relationship, their marriage. Anxious about your retirement. And then before you know it, you go to your grave, having lived a life that was one anxious moment after another. Anxiety is never satisfied until you're in the grave. Brothers and sisters, there's a better way. There is a better way. So let's look at our next point, which is the power of prayer. What's the alternative to anxiety? Well, before we answer that, I actually have to say that, that for some Anxiety has become so much a part of life that it actually 
would feel strange to not be anxious. Have you become so used to being anxious that you either don't want to change, don't know how to change, or you've given up, despaired that you could be free from anxiety? It reminds me of the story from John chapter 5, verse 5, with the man, the invalid, at the pool of Bethesda. It says in John 5, 5 that uh, there was a man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? I think the Lord is saying to some of us this morning, do you want to be healed? If the answer is yes, we find it right here in the text. What is the alternative to anxiety? Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The alternative, the biblical alternative to anxiety is prayer, communion with God through a lifestyle of dependence on God in prayer. Like the words of the psalmist that expresses this heart in Psalm 62, verse 5, it says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. The God-given antidote for anxiety is prayer, communion with God. And notice that it says, it says, in everything, in verse 6, in everything by prayer. That in everything is meant to match that don't be anxious about anything, right? So it's, it's just as all-encompassing. That is, whatever are the, the myriad circumstances that give rise to anxiety in our lives, they must be fought with just as much prayer and reliance on God and dependence on God. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. Because our hearts are such that there's any number of things at any moment that can spring up and be a cause for anxiety. And he says, in everything, through prayer and supplication, we are to call out to our God. And that with thanksgiving is very important because it frames or it shapes the type of prayer that we're talking about. We're talking about a a thankful prayer, a, a prayer of gratitude towards the Lord. And so when we come to God with thanksgiving, what we're doing as we're thankful to the Lord in prayer is We're not just kind of starting from the middle of the story, but we're acknowledging God for the mercies that he's already given to us. So we don't don't come to God in a vacuum, 
but we're actually, we come to him looking back on what he's already done for us. And so in order to do that, in order to pray with thanksgiving, again, you must consider his mercies. You must consider what he's done. So what do you thank God for? If you're a Christian, let's just start by thanking God that you're saved. You can start right there. Thank God that he has not put you in hell. Hallelujah. You can thank God that you've been reconciled to God, that you once were his enemy, and now by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, you are now his friend. You can thank God for that. We can thank God that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. We can thank God that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. We can thank him that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Having trouble thinking about what to thank God for? Thank God that he will never hold your sin against you, ever. Ever. You can thank God that he has and he has promised to supply everything that you need. Just think about it, Christian. Think about your walk with the Lord. Has God ever withheld from you something that you truly, truly needed? Has God ever not been faithful to you? Has God ever not kept a promise? No. We can thank God for that. The Christian always has reason to thank God. And so that, so what that's going to have to do is that's going to have to shape our approach to the Lord. It's one thing to come to God with our fist towards him, right, with our complaints. It's another thing to come to God humbly with thanksgiving as we lay out our petitions and requests. And I think another key to to truly understanding this is, is looking at this phrase in verse 5. It's right in the middle. It says, the Lord is at hand, or the Lord is near, it may say. Now, it's unclear if that phrase, the Lord is at hand, is attached to verse 5 or verse 6. So, so what, it could, what it could say is, let your reasonableness be known to everyone because the Lord is near. That's, a, that's one possibility. Another possibility is the Lord is near, so therefore don't be anxious about anything. And then another challenge is, is whether or not the, that the Lord being at hand or the Lord being near is, is speaking of time or closeness. So if it's speaking about time, 
speaking towards, looking forward towards the, the second coming, the Lord is, his, his second coming is at hand. The Lord, the Lord is, he's coming soon. It could mean that. Or it could mean the Lord is near in the sense of closeness, like Psalm 145 verse 18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him in truth. I think both are true that the Lord Jesus is coming, so therefore there's no need to be anxious about anything. And I think, I think the context would probably support that more based on what was said in uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 21. But either way, and, and, and it, it also could actually be a play on word that, that he, means, he means both, that the Lord is coming soon and the Lord is near, and so therefore don't be anxious. But either way, the command is the same. I think you also see another contrast here in the language. Notice how it said in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then down in verse 6 at the end it says, let your requests be made known to God. So that your reasonableness be made known to everyone, your requests be made known to God. The one won't happen without the other. So it's the one who has a lifestyle of making their requests known to God who are able by the grace of God to live a life where their gentleness is known to everybody. So, so, so prayerlessness will remove the gentleness or the reasonableness that should be there for us all. So let's finally look at the promise of Peace, the promise of peace. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, again, is reminiscent of the Lord Jesus and his teaching in John chapter 14 verse 27 he tells his disciples he says peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid what's fascinating about this verse is that Nowhere in here do we see an actual answer to the prayer. You notice that? It, so, so it says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and God will answer your prayer, and the peace of God, which surpasses... No. It doesn't say God will answer the prayer. So, so it's, the, it's the act of prayer itself that the Lord uses as the means to bring about the peace. It's not about the final result or even being removed from the situation, but it's about the one that we're praying to. It's about the God that we're committing ourselves to. So even apart from an actual answer, now we know the Lord is good. We know that the Lord answers prayer. And, but we also know that he answers them according to his infinite wisdom and that his no's are informed by infinite love and wisdom and understanding. And his yeses are informed by his fatherly care and his compassion. 
So praise God for the no's. Praise God for, the, for, for, not, for not answering a lot of the stuff that we were asking for, somebody. There's a lot of stuff that I was asking for that I'm, hallelujah, that God said no. Because when I ask, I'm asking out of my own limited, finite mind. We, we don't even know how to pray as we ought. We learn in Romans 8, right? And so the peace, God gives this promise of peace even without the actual prayer being answered. It's the act of coming to God. And I like how he says he'll guard, the peace of God will guard. That word guard is a military term. Paul, he's writing from prison, right? He's chained to somebody. So he has this idea of a guard right there in his face as he's writing. That word, guard, same word in 2 Corinthians 10.5 when it says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. Same word, captive. The peace of God will take our thoughts captives. We'll guard our thoughts. We'll guard our thoughts from what? From all of the atheistic, anxiety-ridden, satanic, demonic thoughts against God that come into our minds in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering. The peace of God will guard our minds. And when it says we'll guard our hearts, it's speaking of, of guarding the, the center of who we are, the very core of our being. We're completely safe in the arms of God. And I think another thing to notice is that this, this peace, this peace that we experience, this peace of God, is not just merely an individualized thing. So, so we've been speaking about it in, in the way that it's often conveyed is that this is all just kind of me and my own personal subjective feelings of peace. But we have to remember the context, right? The context we just saw up earlier in verse 2 that Paul is encouraging these women to agree in the Lord, to have the same mind in the Lord. So, so this peace is a, a corporate peace. It's a, a communal Peace. It's meant to be experienced within the household of faith. It's similar to Colossians 3.15 when it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, plural, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So this peace is something that God gives to the people of God to enable us to walk in harmony together. And the thing that makes this different from either any other religion or philosophy is those final words in Christ Jesus. See that at the end of verse 7? We'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's speaking to being united with Christ and receiving the benefits that come through our union with Christ. So we are not to seek this peace in anything outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Many of us have all kinds of things that we go to for comfort that are not God himself. And what have we found? We found that those things do not ultimately satisfy. So it's not going to be vegging out in front of the TV. That's not going to bring me any kind of permanent peace. It's not going to be in food, right? It's going to be in God himself as I call out to him. And what, what a privilege we have that we can approach our God in this way, that there's nothing that is too insignificant for our God that we can't bring before him. He promises that the very, the very hairs on our head are numbered, and he cares for us. And so we can come, we can literally come to him with everything, and that brings him great glory. This is, this is really uh, something that hits home with me this week, because I've, this, this week has been a very difficult week. I've struggled to rejoice in the Lord this week. As last week, we spoke about the situation in Ferguson, and that was still going on strong, and then, boom, another gut punch, the situation with Eric Garner in New York, a man being choked to death on camera for all to see and left to die in the street. And I'm sure there are a variety of perspectives on that event. But for me, as a father of a two-year-old boy, a two-year-old African-American boy who will, Lord willing, grow up to be an African-American young man, it crushed me. We were watching CNN the other night, and on the television, there was a, a chant. People were chanting that black lives matter. And my son asked me, he said, Daddy, two years old, what, what are they saying on TV? And I told him, I said, son, they're saying black lives matter. And he said, Daddy, why are they saying that? And I, I had no answers for him. It was hard for me to rejoice as I looked at the situation. And as time came, as it came closer to the time when it was, you know, we, we went to Philly on Friday to our church planting meeting and and then Sunday's approaching and I'm like Lord I don't even I'm, I'm, I'm about to get up here and preach about rejoicing in the Lord and I'm not feeling any joy right now and the thing that the Lord used to remind me is what was said in chapter 2 of Philippians 2 about Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It didn't make the situation change. It didn't mean that I still wasn't grieved and I still don't have a lot of hard things to think about when I think about particularly my son and raising him in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. But what it does mean is that my hope is not ultimately here in this world. What it does mean is that there is a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is coming back to make all things new and to make all things right. And in that, that has to be enough for me, for you, whatever it is, the situations that you're facing right now, it has to be enough that Jesus is highly exalted and that Jesus has been given the name that is above every name. Because at the end of the day, that is our only unshakable hope. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Father, we pray that by your grace you would help your people to rejoice in you always. And we pray, Lord, that communing with you, calling out to you, crying out to you in prayer, that that would be our food, that that would sustain us, and that it would calm all of our fears, all of our anxieties. Help us to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.